Adventures in Teaching. Stories of creativity, relationships, excitement, and suspense from the university and K-12 classroom. Brought to you by KELT, the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Thompson Rivers University. Engagement is a word that seems to be getting overused these days. However, when you really think about the term engagement and where it can mean two people becoming betrothed to one another or making a commitment to one another, it actually kind of fits in teaching. This episode features two educators who are in an administrative phase of their careers, but they're going to talk about teaching and the relationship and commitment of teachers and learners to each other to make sure that learning is relevant and have high quality and has some real meaning in the community. It's in two parts. The first part, they're going to talk about learning and teaching. And in the second part, they're going to talk specifically about learning and teaching in the context of heritage, history, and research in Engaging Research. to Adventures in Teaching. This month, we have two special guests who are going to speak with us. They are both teachers. We have Rob Shane, who also happens to be the Assistant Superintendent of Elementary Education in School District 73. And we have Dr. Will Garrett-Petz, who is Professor of English and Modern Languages, and also happens to be the Associate Vice President of Graduate Studies and Research. I said that backwards. Research and Graduate Studies. So welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Good afternoon, John. Let's get some of your experiences out in terms of where you started teaching and what the kinds of things that you've taught in the past. Like what, what levels have you taught? What courses have you taught? Absolutely. So um, I began teaching in northern Alberta on an Indian reserve by the name of uh, Whitefish Lake. And uh, the name it went by on the map was Atikameg. I began teaching alternate education to, uh, to students who uh, had come back uh, to school, usually ages 16, 17, and uh, Cree was the first language of, of all of the students, and they were there as a, uh, they went, came back to school as a mechanism to hopefully get their graduation uh, certificate at some point. But up until that point, they'd been very unsuccessful. Many had spent time in what was known as Youth Detention Center. And uh, we had um, two alternate classes. One was called 8B, one was called 7B, and uh, they were students aged 14 to 17 that we worked with uh, using uh, a life skills uh, approach to, to learning to help them um, hopefully be successful. 
And from there, went to uh, Northern British Columbia and taught in a two-teacher school on mile 422 of the Alaska Highway with my lovely bride, uh, teaching students uh, at that time in grades 6 to 11, uh, all of the subject areas, so got uh, relatively familiar with the, uh, with the curriculum. And then from there, went down to uh, Clearwater, which was its own school district back in the day, um, and taught grade 7. Uh, and kind of in the middle of that little uh, stint, I went to Australia and uh, taught for a year at a primary school teaching grade six, and then uh, and then back uh, to Clearwater when uh, the district became amalgamated with uh, School District 73 Campus Thompson and uh, began a career um, in principaling and the like. And the like. Okay. What about you, Well, I like principling too. This is very good. The... Um it makes me think my my very first teaching experience would have been while I was still an undergraduate. I was a visiting student at University of Alberta in Edmonton, and I spent the summer um, teaching new immigrants to Canada uh, English as a second language. Uh, so that was probably my first formal teaching job. Uh, then I was a teaching assistant at uh, UBC during my master's program. I handed a class of 45 students uh, with no practical teacher training. And uh, the, the term teaching assistant is an interesting euphemism in universities. It, it means you're on your own, son. <laughs> Here's your 45 students. Go to it. And, and that was absolutely fascinating. Because I'd, I'd never seen other students writing at that point. And, and English was my discipline. And so I was in there in a first-year English class, and we did what was called the diagnostic essay, uh, typical of UBC. In the first week, you ask everybody to write a little bit in class, take them in, and find out what kind of students you have in terms of their, their writing abilities. I'd never seen writing like that in my life. And um, there was a, a prof there, uh, Andrea Lunsford, who gave a couple of orientation classes to all of the um, the TAs on rhetoric and composition, as it was called. It was how to, how to teach reading and writing, essentially at advanced levels. And I dropped a couple of my other classes, ran to her like crazy after the orientation session and said, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was my introduction and uh, fascination with teaching uh, reading and writing, which has become the, the focus of everything that I've done since. From UBC, I taught at um, UVic, uh, taught then at Caribou College uh, for a better part of six years, before going off to do my PhD uh, back at University of Alberta and um, taught um, numerous classes, years one through four there, over a two-and-a-half-year period, and then uh, back here teaching a range of courses, which, although my area is English studies, would probably be best described as uh, literacy studies. I'm interested in all forms of literacy, especially visual and verbal literacy. And so I tend to have taught um, interdisciplinary kinds of courses that cut across reading, writing, and visual presentation, even working with artists, uh, which also infects the kind of work that I do um, as, a, uh, as a researcher. For example, most recently, um, 
I've been involved in something called cultural mapping work, which is asking people in their communities to visually represent their sense of place and sense of identity within that place and uh, studying studying that and uh, look forward to teaching that more too. Wow, that's that's really interesting stuff. Really interesting. I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna go down that road a little bit uh, in this. Gives discussion. you something to mind, does it? <laughs> Absolutely does. But just to get just to kick things off, tell us a story about something extreme or something unusual that you did in your class to really engage your learners. I can be. I guess one of the things that really struck me was probably a, an epic fail, and uh, and kind of guided me in terms of uh, moving forward. It was in my very first teaching job. You know, I was teaching 16, 17-year-olds who had not been successful and and thought probably, well, what they needed to learn is they needed to learn grammar and they needed to learn, um, you know, parts of speech and uh, and sentence structure and then they needed to learn how to write a paragraph and then we would get them to writing, you know, longer pieces of writing because uh, that's what they needed to know. And um, and I had made some pretty um, extensive plans before I began my first job. And I remember walking into the classroom on the very first day, and a kid kind of looked up to me, slouched in his chair, and went, you know, Kigwai Tutaman Munyao. And uh, I, you know, learned later that that meant, what do you want, white man? And um, I realized I wasn't in... Um, Southgate area of Southwest Edmonton anymore. I was in a in a new community where perhaps that might not work so much. And even though I tried it, you know what? It did not work so much. So <laughs> I quickly uh, I quickly found out with the help of uh, of, of colleagues that uh, we needed to have a curriculum and uh, and activities that were a little bit more engaging uh, to students who had not been successful. And uh, the first thing we uh, we took on at that point was something called hunter training, which was an Alberta curriculum around the outdoors and, and wildlife. And we got in conservation officers and we got in first aid attendants and uh, and we went out to learn how to build fires and, and shelters and lean-tos. And that was an example where we could go out and learn something and uh, and engage students in a manner that would make them begin to want to write and to and to participate but it was through the the sort of uh the 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 participatory learning um with these students that i really found uh a a success story in an otherwise poorly planned uh, first month of school (laughs) what about you will you must have something interesting in there with that wide interest range must have something interesting. There, there's the pressure. <laughs> well, let, let me. Let me uh, I, I know you said something extreme or so, uh, something unusual. Or... Unusual. But let me riff off uh, Rob's experience a little bit because it brings to mind something similar that I experienced. Um, would have been 1982, maybe 83, but I think it was the very first year that I was teaching at Caribou College. Uh, the we taught a lot back then. We taught uh, five sections and four sections. So nine sections of, of, of English uh, each year, uh, which for those of you who are, uh, are not language instructors, that's a lot of marking. Uh, you multiply that normally by about five to seven pieces of writing per semester. And then the number of students is a, a lot coming in. I came in as a, as a very a, a well-trained but and a very earnest um, instructor to Caribou College, and 
some of the courses that we taught, we called service courses at that time, which meant that they were English courses specific to a career program. Uh, I was assigned in my first year to the social service worker program. It's a two-year diploma program. And the assignments would be assigned by their primary instructor. For example, uh, write up a report about a social service agency. And my job would be to teach them how to write a report. What was it? What did it feel like? What was the grammar? What, what's the, the word choice? What's the tone? What's the voice? And so forth. And as I said, I went in as a very earnest instructor, uh, tried to give them the, the very best information that I could. And uh, the the quality of work coming back was okay, but but not not especially impressive. And I thought what I needed to do was begin to adjust my teaching style and the content, especially to my audience, and that I could anticipate what that was, and maybe I would uh, introduce things a little bit more gently. Uh, I thought I had a good rapport with the class, but I I wasn't seeing the kind of outcomes that one might hope. One of the things that I did as part of my teaching at that point, uh, because we had four-hour classes, four-hour blocks to work with, was set aside some time for one-on-one meetings. And they would literally be two to three minutes, um, just coming in, checking in from time to time, maybe about once a month, uh, the students would come in and do that. Uh, one of the students, about a month and a half into the into the program, came into the uh, the area where I'd set out a, ch- a ch- couple of chairs just outside the classroom in the hallway, uh, and was doing my one-on-one meetings, and uh, said, "Use my first name," and said, "Will, I've got something to say to you." She would have been about ten years older than me. Uh, this, remember, was my first job. Uh, she was a First Nations woman. Uh, with extraordinary life experience, much more than I had ever ever seen or would see. And she had been through the social service system. She was now in the social service worker program. And uh, she was using that life experience to better herself, and she was getting credentialed. She took, took my hand and said, said um, Will, this is, uh, this is really important to all of us. Everybody respects you and what you have to offer us. Do not water it down. She had picked up on the fact that I had begun to change my teaching style and what I was requesting. of. I never said anything about the quality of their work in the classroom setting. She said, you set the standard and we will, we will rise to that standard. Wow, that's powerful. That's that's one of the most form that's a formative moment as a teacher. Absolutely. It 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 said said to me, do not second guess. You offer you be who you are. Don't try and be somebody that you're not. You offer us the very best. You you say where excellence is and we will rise to that. And they did. They absolutely did. Yeah. Wow. Does that reflect your experience, Rob? Yeah, you know, it, it does. It. Um, I remember working with a very experienced principal when I was when I was quite young in, into the game, 
And uh, he always talked about the importance of engaging students and going the extra mile. He says, and he said, you don't realize the impact you've had, you know, until later on in life. He's, and, and the example he used, he says, you know, you, you, you might be you know, sitting in a restaurant and, you know, someone buys you a Coca-Cola. And it's a student that you've long forgotten, and uh, uh, but they remember you, and uh, you know they, they send you, they send you the drink to your table as just sort of a, a way of honoring. And he says, and if you don't do go that extra mile, he says those drinks don't come. And he said, so, uh, so you need to make sure that uh, you know, you take every opportunity to um, to not waste any time and, and do the best you can by by your students. And and it's been kind of a credo that uh, I've I've had. Um, in the back of my mind, which is, you know, time is short and, uh, and, and what can we do to make memories for kids? Because I always used to think, you know, what do kids remember? They remember their Christmas concerts. They remember their field trips. They, re- they remember, uh, you know, perhaps a very special activity that was done, but they don't always remember what they did in grade four, you know, mathematics um, as, as a memorable sort of life-changing moment. So I have had some experiences that, uh, that have really resonated. One was in a Tecumseh. I, I remember and it, was a, it was a humbling experience with, with an elder lady. Um, and I, was, I, I looked at this community of, of just vast potential, and I would watch students, you know, quit school at 15, 16 years old, and, uh, and sometimes by choice and sometimes it was circumstance. And we had a number of young ladies who, who uh, became pregnant at, at, uh, while well, still in high school. And I remember saying to one of the elders, saying, you know, if we could just find a way, you know, to, uh, to not have that happen, you know, if the kids weren't pregnant and they could stay school, you know, we would be able to, to continue, uh, you know, the, the great potential that this community has, uh, you know, and uh, I think we'll see things just move along so much quicker. And I remember the uh, I remember the elder lady. She again took my hand. It was interesting, and uh, she kind of patted it. Uh, uh, and she said, "You know, Rob." She said, "Babies are good things," and I thought to myself, "Yeah, yeah, they are good things. You're right." You know, here I am again imposing my my values on on what I think uh, the, the, your your community should be, and really what we should be is celebrating, supporting, and then maybe there's another way around this. And um, and that was a formative experience in terms of you know maybe we do have two ears and one mouth, and maybe I need to pay a little bit closer <laughs> attention to to the people. Yeah, it it seems you know, what what you're speaking to is is the three dimensional aspect of teaching. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to focus on curriculum. We tend to focus on content. And, and my anecdote was about content, too, about what, what, what you're delivering and making sure of the integrity of, of, uh, and the substance of, of what one is teaching. But what I hear there is, is, is a modeling of, of who you are and what you represent as a person, too, in that classroom. When, when I came back from doing my doctoral studies... Again, it, this, this was in a first-year literature class. I used to get the students um, for discussion purposes in a circle where we could still fit that number of desks in a room to, to move them around properly. And um, one of my students, who was um, uh, slightly older, um, had her child in tow, probably about oh, four or five years old. And 
she came a little bit late and, and then apologized because she had her child with her. Her uh, child care services had fallen apart at that particular point, and she was saying she didn't want to miss the class. And I said, oh, of course, that's just fine. Uh, that's all right. And she had some coloring pencils and, and some stuff for the child and sitting around in the circle. And, and I was at the center and we carrying on the discussion. And her child, her little boy, uh, dropped a pencil or a crayon or something on the floor. And apparently, um, as I was talking, I didn't break stride and just could have picked it up and made sure that, that the child had it again and so forth. You think that was just completely incidental. About five or six years later, uh, that same woman, my former student, came up to me and said that she was in the education program. I said, oh, that's great. And she said, do you know why I went into education? No. (laughs) Do do you remember when uh, I had to bring my boy to to class? I said, yeah, just vaguely, yeah. Then she described what had happened. And I said, well, she said, "I I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to create a space where people felt comfortable where there was no uh, stigmatization, um, where the, the conversation could continue just like in normal life. And, and I, at that point, would have been worrying about what I was saying, about, about the content. What she took away and remembered all those years later, and she said that inspired her, reinforced her commitment to becoming a teacher too, was the behavior. Yeah. Another powerful story. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, it's, I find it fascinating. When we go to convocation, the number of, of young children we see crossing the stage with mm-hmm. mothers, and, it's, and it's, it's a recognition of that in some cases the, the child has actually technically gone through the program with the mother. So it's, and how we can create those spaces. The School of Education now has a couple of classrooms that have chairs in it that could be used as a nursing chair, sort uh-huh. of a comfortable chair. That, and there are some, some mothers that are coming into class with their, with their children. So that's... Well, it's 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 about power relations. It's about hierarchies. It, it's about uh, the sense of what an institution represents and who belongs and who doesn't belong. How comfortable we are, mm-hmm. and I guess in our classrooms we have the wonderful opportunity to create what spaces we want. If if we want to make sure that uh, people are on pins and needles <laughs> and listening to every word, and and there's no room for for any. Uh, any sort of deviation from that, I guess we could do that. But there are other kinds of classrooms we, we can create too. Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, just sort of thinking about what you've said and what Rob said, it's like mm-hmm. we need to have a high standard. So, you know, you can, you can set the high standard so you don't, pan, you know, you don't, you don't water it down. Oh, yeah. So you keep the content there. You keep the content relevant as, as you did to find an opening for where the students are coming from. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about relationships. Mm-hmm. Really, at the end of the day, I think I think it's I don't think it's an either or. Mm. I, I I think if if the substance isn't there, if, if uh, you can be uh, a show person, you can be uh, witty and fun and so forth. But if but if especially at a university level, if the substance isn't there, the students aren't going to come back. But if if you can also model the the essence of one's discipline. If, if you can talk from lived experience about uh, the work that you've done representing 
and using that discipline and those methods. Uh, when when somebody says uh, speaking as an economist or speaking as a sociologist or speaking as a literary critic, whatever it might be, if they can do that authentically, then they're going to connect too. And then yes, if if they're a fully rounded human being, great. Now, having said that, one of my best teachers was a terrible SOB who, uh, I won't use his name, <laughs> but, but it was in second year, um, no, it was first year, first year, second semester at UVic. And he was a brute, just a brute. He, as a matter of principle, failed 60% of the students on the first paper. He, it was that kind of cliche teacher. And he, and he never got any better. But uh, I learned so much in that guy's presence. I never wanted to emulate him or his style or anything really about him. But in terms of me learning things in a short order, uh, he, was, he was a great provocateur. Those are some great stories about how learners and teachers have engaged with one another, made commitments to one another about quality learning happening. In part two of engaging research, we're going to talk about the research side and how research itself can be a huge piece of teaching and learning, as well as a way of making a commitment to the community. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not of the university. The music for this episode was Stan Rogers' Northwest Passage, performed by Emma Rush from her recent CD, Canadiana. This is Adventures in Teaching. Brought to you by CELT, the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Thompson Rivers University.